am uh, looking forward to uh, finishing off this short little series that we've had during the month of September called Labor for the Harvest. And so uh, looking forward to doing that and then looking forward to jumping into another short five-week series um, in October uh, and then jumping into the book of Exodus for November and December and then starting going through the Gospel of John verse by verse in January. So that's our plan. Uh, but today is the last week in this short little series called Labor for the Harvest. We started out a couple of weeks ago in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew, we saw, we looked at, at the end of chapter 9, and we saw that Jesus saw the crowds with many, many people, and he saw great need, but only few laborers. So Jesus told his disciples to pray. And in that, we asked God, God, would you give us as a church, would you give us as individuals eyes to see people like Jesus sees them? Who it says in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so we asked God, would you give us that kind of heart that would look on the crowds with compassion? And then Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out into the harvest. And so hopefully we are people that continue to pray for that. But then we found also as we went through Matthew 9, 10, and 11, we saw that Jesus sent out those disciples that he called to pray. Many of them were then sent out by Jesus only to find that as they labored for the gospel, shared the good news that Jesus had sent them out to share, that a lot of people just didn't want to hear it rejected the gospel that they had come to share. And so Jesus said, but this good news is for all people, so keep at it. And he told them this, you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me because you'll find rest in me. So we looked at that and saw that in Matthew. And then last week we looked ahead to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we looked at the last two verses in chapter 15 last week. The big idea last week was this. In the midst of messy lives, the victory, hope, and promises we have in Jesus motivate us to keep working hard for the sake of the gospel. If you don't remember, if you weren't here, there's a lot of people here last week, but if you weren't one of those, here's what those two verses were. The last two verses of 1 Corinthians 15 say this, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so, today we're going to continue with the very next verses. Those were the last two verses of chapter 15. Today we're going to start with the first 11 verses of chapter 16. And we'll see a lot of the themes that we saw it last week in chapter 15 are going to be carried through here into chapter 16 as Paul starts to write the conclusion of this letter. Here's the big idea today. As we labor together for the gospel, we give what we have for the good of our fellow laborers. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Like I said, we're going to go through verses 1 through 11. One of our habits here is that as God's word is read, we stand. And so if you're able to, would you please do that? Let's pray first, Father, as we just prayed through our singing, we pray that you would speak now through your word, that you would test our thoughts and our attitudes, 
And we pray that um, you would continue to speak until your purposes are fulfilled. God, we pray that all of this would be for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. You can be seated. Now this is one of those passages that you might read over kind of quickly because it seems like, well, that's just instructions that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth about how they're supposed to give and how they're supposed to treat other people there. And so much of it seems like maybe at first glance, I don't know how much of this applies to me, but I think as we go through this, and as I studied it this week, I found how much of it did, and it flows right from the great verses that we went over last week at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. So two points this morning. The first one is this, fellow laborers set aside and give money. Paul here was talking about a collection. He calls it the collection for the saints, and he'd also given direction to the churches of Galatia to do something with it. We'd have to look to other books of the Bible to learn more about this collection and why he was taking it. We're not going to take time to do that this morning. You could look in Acts and Romans, 2 Corinthians, and learn more about it. But what was happening is Paul was going around to churches, many of which he had planted himself, And he was taking up a collection so that when he went back to Jerusalem, he could deliver the money to the saints there in Jerusalem who were in need. So he was taking money that was given mostly by Gentile Christians and giving it to mostly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Kind of an interesting uh, witness and testimony within the church and the people outside of the church of these two groups who typically just didn't really like each other a whole lot now sharing with each other these goods as they labored together in gospel ministry, some in Jerusalem and some in the uttermost parts of the world. And so Paul is taking up this collection, and in a way it unifies the church, bringing them together, saying, well, this is our mission, and these people are brothers and sisters, and they need some help. So let's take some money and bring it over there. So he begins with some collection directions. Now, verse 2, he gets a little more specific. He tells those in Corinth and the church there, so he's talking to believers, and he tells them this, on the first day of every week, so the first day of the week would be Sunday, and at this point it seems that already this is when God's people would gather together for worship, on the first day of the week. See, the the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday, 
But when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, those that followed Christ shifted their day of gathering together for worship from Saturday to Sunday, the day on which Jesus was raised from the dead. And so Paul instructs them that on the first day of every week, on Sunday, the day that they would gather together as a church, he says, each of you, so he's talking to all of them, not just specific leaders in the church or something, but each of the people in the church, all the believers, he says, is to put something aside and store it up. So he's going to take a collection and he's telling them, be intentional about setting something aside for that first day of the week, storing it up, probably assuming like it is for us that uh, if you don't set it aside and store it up, you'll probably find a way to spend it, right? So set something aside, store it up, and then he says this, he adds this line, as he may prosper, or your translation might say, in keeping with his income, okay? So the idea is, in as much as God has blessed you financially, then you ought to store up, set aside some out of that in proportion to what you have received. So in accordance with your income or as he may prosper, right? So as you've been given, take some of that and proportionally set that aside on that first day of the week. And then he says it so that there will be no collecting when I come. He doesn't want to have to spend all this time. Well, I thought you were going to be giving me some money to bring over there, and now where is it? And everybody's got to try and scramble to figure it out. Just get that figured out before I get there, Paul says. And then he gives a few uh, more instructions, letting them know that I think this is good. Paul is always concerned. If you read his letters, he doesn't want anything to get in the way to be a hindrance to the gospel going forward. The good news of Jesus must go out to more and more people, and he doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. And here you see that in him saying, I want some accountability to be happening as money gets handled. So he's talking about letters of accreditation and uh, whatever seems advisable, that's what we'll do. Okay, So he's being clear. I want some accountability to take place as the money is taken in and as this collection is delivered. And so, again, Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth. And and let me just be frank with you and letting you know that the Apostle Paul will not be arriving at Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church to take a collection from you and to bring it to saints in Jerusalem. Because the Apostle Paul is now in heaven with Jesus and he's not here. So that's not going to happen. So you might read something like this, like I did when I first read it. Like, okay, so what does that mean for us though? If every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, how is this useful for us? And I saw some principles in here that I think are very helpful for us, and I want to share those with us as a way of application. And first I saw this, that as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's expecting them to give. That's why he says stuff like, each of you. And it's also expected that it's going to be proportional. He says, as God has prospered you, or according to your income, according to how much that you've been given, you ought to give away. And so, I I mentioned that. He said, each one. And so, well, that was Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth, which, remember, if you were here last week, we talked about the context of Corinth. Corinth was relatively wealthy. And so most of the Christians, probably middle class people, 
Um, which I would say, even if you might find yourself on the lower end of middle class or even in, 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 a, in a lower class here in the United States, compared to the rest of the people in the rest of the world, we are uh, middle, upper class kind of people, right? So we have something in common with the church in Corinth here that we have been given much. Unfortunately, we, we often still think we need more, but more on that here in just a moment. But as Paul's context is writing to a generally wealthy, by worldly standards, church, I think we can hear his instruction as well with an expectation that we, who have been given much more than most other people in the world, ought to be expected to give what God gives to us, right? And then also this, this principle of proportionality, okay? So this idea that as much as God prospers you or according to the income that you have received, that's how we ought to think about giving. Like I said, we've been given so much here in America, just living here. We have access to things and we possess things that most believers and non-believers throughout all the rest of the world and throughout most of history don't have or didn't have access to. We always think we need more, so we buy things on credit and pay exorbitant credit card rates and all that stuff because we're just never satisfied typically. But we can always upgrade our technology, can't we? We can always trade up for a better vehicle. We can always redecorate. We can always remodel. We can go out to eat more. We can spend lots of money on recreation, on entertainment. There are lots of ways for us to spend what comes into us. And so we're never going to have a shortage of opportunities. I mean, I don't think that anybody in our church has the kind of income where you're like, I don't even know what to do with all of it. You could probably find stuff to do with every penny that comes in, right? And so, so I think that's probably reality for most of us. But we can always get better stuff. We're getting delivered to our house this week a new mattress. Um, it was time for us, we felt like, to get a new mattress. Recognizing, though, even as I thought about this this week, so it's being delivered to our house, this new mattress, but the mattress we're upgrading from would probably be an upgrade for most people, for billions of people in this world, right? And so we have that ability in America, and we just take it for granted. Like, we just, we have lots of really nice stuff, and we eat lots of really good food, and all of that. We live in really nice homes and drive really nice vehicles. We have lots of stuff. And so there is this idea that our giving is to be proportional. More on that here in just a second. But we are prosperous. And because we could always spend more on other stuff, intentionality is necessary. I got that also out of looking at this, where Paul talks to the church in Corinth, and he tells them, on the first day of the week, set aside and store it up. As, as money comes into you, before it just starts seeping out all over the place, be intentional about setting some aside and storing it up. I think that is helpful for us, that we must plan to give and set money aside because we could always spend more on ourselves. And I'm also confident of this, that as we give, God will continue to provide. I'm going to just share a, a bit of a personal testimony of things that God has been teaching us in this area, ways in which we've grown in this area, just to be transparent with you. Um, and that is uh, this. Um, First of all, we have one income as a family, uh, and it comes from your giving. So my income is probably different than the rest of the way the rest of you 
do income. My give it, my income, our income, our whole family's income comes from your generous giving. And so first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for your generous giving that provides so generously so that we can buy a new mattress and all sorts of other things like that. And so that Kirsten can focus on ministering to the church in a number of ways and our family without needing to go get more employment. We're very, very thankful for that. We are rich, and we've been rich for a long time. Uh, we got married between our junior and senior year of college, and at that time we weren't rich. Um, but after that, uh, as soon as we started getting jobs, compared to everybody else in the world, we are rich. God has provided incredibly for us. And, and, and so as, as a newly married couple and as new Christians now having an income, my parents had taught me that the Bible commanded a 10% tithe. And so I remember that when I became a Christian and got married and got a job. My parents even made me when I was in, uh, they didn't make me, I think I wanted to do it too. Um, I'm not sure, I can't remember, they probably made me. Uh, when I was in high school and had a job, I would, I would give 10% of whatever, whatever so it was to the church right away, 10% was what uh, I learned from my parents and thought that the Bible had taught. And so when Kirsten and I were married, that's the practice that we initiated. Whatever income we had coming in before taxes and expenses and all that stuff, it was like, we're going to give 10% to the church. And so we started doing that. And as we did that, we set it aside right away. We found that even when we didn't have much money, we had enough. Like we never went without a meal. We never were late on any payment on anything. We were able to pay all of our bills and live in a decent apartment and all of that kind of stuff. And so we did that. Um, but as, as we studied the Bible more and came to learn that there is no New Testament command to tithe 10%, but instead the, the, the command in, in, in uh, the New Testament seems to be a lot more about just sacrificial, generous giving. And as we were more convicted about all that God has given us, we just decided, you know, that 10%, that can be like a baseline, but God has given us so much that I don't, I don't want to just like cap it off there and kind of like check that one off my list. Like now I think I'm doing good. And so, so we just decided we're going to try and start doing more than that. And so we've been able to do that uh, more and more as the years have gone on. And in, even in the midst of that, and then in addition to that, then we can also support some friends that are missionaries and that kind of stuff. And so it's been good for us to be learning all of this stuff. And you know what's happened as we've given more and more over time? We're still not hungry, and we just bought a new mattress. And like, uh, so, so our, uh, so we, like my car's 17 years old, and our van's like nine years old. But anywhere we want to go, we can go there, and we can afford gas to put it in. Like if we want, like we went on vacation and spent some money doing that, we could do that. Like we eat great food. Our house is air conditioned and heated and big enough to have other people come and visit us. All sorts of stuff. We have, we have so much. And God has blessed us in so many ways materially, not even accounting for all of the ways in which God has given us spiritual blessings in Christ. We were once orphaned and now we are sons and daughters of the king, right? We were once dead in our sin, and now we're made alive together with Christ. All of these things, and it's these kinds of things that I hope are what motivate us to give. We don't give out of like some promise, like, well, if I give, then God's going to give back. I'm going to plant the seed, and God's going to like, I, none of that stuff. And we're not motivated by guilt. We don't want to motivate you by like, hey, a lot of people in this church are giving a lot more than you. 
When are you going to step up? Like, nobody wants to be motivated by that. We're motivated by just looking up and seeing all that God has given and then looking around and seeing the community around us, which is why a number of you have said, yes, this, this idea of an associate pastor coming in because of the great need in our community and the great potential in our church to bring somebody in to equip us to do more work, to reach more people with the gospel, yes, we're going to commit to give more of that. That's what kind of motivation we want to have behind any giving that we do. And so that's what I mean by proportional giving. In light of all that God has given us, we in turn want to respond by giving sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully, not out of guilt. I'm reminded of this story that I read, a testimony of uh, someone else. And I'll just read like three sentences. Um, This is about a guy who was convicted by teaching in the Bible about money. And he had a lot of stuff and a big house. And so he decided to sell that and invest more of his money in resources that would advance the gospel and glorify Jesus. And so then he went to visit his pastor, and here's what he said. I wonder at some points if I'm being irresponsible or unwise. But then I realize there's never going to come a day when I stand before God and he looks at me and says, I wish you would have kept more for yourself. I'm confident that God will take care of me. I, rem- I read that, that story a long time ago, and I thought, you know what, that, 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 that stuck with me, and I remember that again. This guy just saying, like, I don't think I'm going to come before God someday, and he's going to say, you know what, why'd you give so much? You could have spent more on yourself. I don't think I'm going to hear that. And so even if, even if what I'm doing might seem a bit unwise to other people, I want to be intentional about continually giving. So remember that. And so let me just ask this question. What if, instead of our giving starting with an assessment of what we're going to have left over after we've done all the things we want to do, what if our giving looked like, in light of all that God has provided to me, how should I respond? Or maybe to say it this way. What if the reason God has given us so much is not so that we can have much, but so that we can give much? I'm going to reflect on that a lot this week as I wrote that on my own little notes. What if the reason that God has given us so much is not so that we can have much, but so that we can give much? And so, uh, I am going to get to the rest of the verses. We're spending most of our time on these ones, and that's okay. But just getting really practical, um, some of you, like maybe the step you need to take in this area is you haven't been very intentional nor generous, nor sacrificial, and you are somebody who professes faith in Jesus. You maybe just need to wrestle with some of these things more. Uh, I I have some resources I could share with you. Um, You could talk to other believers, ask people in your life group about uh, their experience of all of this kind of stuff. Uh, Watch the Treasure Principle on, uh, on Right Now Media. We can get you access to that by calling the office if you need it. All sorts of things that we could do. But some of you, you're planning. Like, the, like you, you've been thinking about this maybe already, and this is maybe just, okay, so now he talked about it more, and I get this from Scripture, and I want to give more. Well, just very quickly, because I realize there's new people in the church, and not everybody knows how this works. You can give in a couple of different ways to the church, if that's where you want to give. One is, right before I preach, uh, offering plates are passed around. And in that, all of that money that goes into those plates goes into our general fund. And so it pays for things like uh, 
building maintenance. Okay? This building gets used. It's filled up on Sunday morning, every room. On Wednesday night, it's filled every room. Tuesday morning, tons of kids in the nursery, uh, 20-some ladies in there for a women's Bible study. This, this building gets used, and we need to pay to keep it up. And so as you put money in the general fund, it goes to this ministry tool called a building. It also goes to pay my salary. We're now going to add for 2018 an associate pastor's salary to that budget as well. It goes to our global and local missions partners. So, so as you give, that some of that is going to uh, the clinic and orphanage that Mary Beth and Bio uh, have in Jos, Nigeria. Some of it's going to Mandy and her ministry in Bucharest, Romania. Um, some of it's going to Chad uh, and his ministry right here at the State Training School. All sorts of ways in which that money gets directed as you give. And so thank you for that giving. If um, There's information in the bulletin, I think, about if you want, like if part of your needing to be more intentional is you don't remember uh, to give and set some aside, and you just need it to be automatically withdrawn from your account, there's stuff in the bulletin about how you can make that happen. Just call Jeff, and, and, uh, and he can get you connected with that. But also, here's what I've been very encouraged by in my time with this church is that uh, when, when we lay out a need before the body, the body steps up. And so a couple of weeks ago after Hurricane Harvey hit, we, we bring up EFCA, Reach Global Crisis Response, uh, is, is seeking to build up believers there to help churches, to help their neighbors. And so uh, we just said we're going to take an offering for that, and like 1300 dollars came in. Very generous. Jess Peterson, by the way, is working on planning a trip in January to go and help out there. And so more details probably on that in the, in the near future. But I love the way that this church gives time and money when they see a need set in front of them. Mission trips, uh, by the way, benevolent offering next week is going to stay a little more local. Uh, we take that offering once a month. And usually it's used for people within our church family. But there's a number of people in our community that are in need in various ways. And one thing that can happen is churches can get used um, and so people will come to every of the 13 different churches in town, get a little money with a story in, in all of them, and, and come home with really kind of a lot of money. We don't want to be taken advantage of in that way. And so we have a fund that we pool together with other churches so that when people are in need locally, we can assist them in the name of Jesus. That's where our benevolent fund is going to next week. Okay? So lots of ways to give. Just wanted to get practical and let you know how all of that works if you have questions. Talk to maybe one of the deacons. Talk to the church office. We'll get you in contact with the right people. All right. Next. We're going to go through these next ones really fast. And that is the second point. Fellow laborers, welcome and help one another. First thing I noticed as I went through verses 5 through 7 is this needing one another, this helping one another that happens within the body of Christ. It's personal and mutual. So Paul certainly, you can imagine, if the Apostle Paul... Church in Corinth is a mess. I'm sure they could really use Paul's help. Like if he shows up, he might get some of these things straightened out. So he's going to help them with his visit. But notice also there in verse uh, 6 where he says he wants to come and stay with them so that you may help me. It's mutual. And it's personal too. Like he's, I don't want to just stop by for a visit. I'd love to spend the winter with you guys. I would love to spend some time with you, not just pass through in a visit. And so, so as the body of Christ, as we work together, we develop relationships that are pure, personal and mutual. 
Like, I receive a lot from you as a pastor and hopefully give some to you as a pastor. In your life groups, you're going to both give and receive from one another within the body of Christ. Our relationships are personal and mutual. And then, verses 8 and 9. This one, uh, I had underlined this and made some notes in the margin of my Bible a while ago on this. Because I was just like, whoa, that's not how we talk. Because here's what Paul says. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. We use this language. Like God has opened up a door. It's pretty obvious. God has opened up this door. He wants me to go through this door. We use that language, right? And Paul is saying that's what God's done. He's opened a wide, a wide door for effective work for gospel ministry. But then notice what it says. And there are many adversaries. Well, isn't that a closed door then? Like, that's the way we'd interpret it, I think, most of the time. Like, I think that God is calling me to this. So the door is wide open, but then we run into a barrier, and like, well, I guess God closed that door, and so then we're just done. Well, that's not the way Paul's doing it. Paul says, it's like a battle over here in Ephesus. There's a whole bunch of opposition, a lot of adversaries. People don't like the message of the gospel And so there's this wide door open for effective work, so I'm going to hang out here for a while. He's not running away from adversity. He's not running away from opposition. But he's saying, I see there's a wide open door for effective ministry here, so that's where I'm staying, even if there is opposition. I think that's really helpful. Uh, Learn some from that. Come back to that in a second. And then this, laborers care for one another. Paul, remember, Timothy was like a spiritual son to Paul. And so Paul says, well, you know, when, uh, when Timothy gets there, I hope you take care of him. Put him at ease among you. He's doing the work of the Lord just like me. He's laboring for the harvest. So take care of him. Don't let anybody despise him. Help him. Okay? He just cares about this spiritual son, Timothy, wanting the church to care for them. So a couple of points of application with that is, first of all, like I said, don't assume that adversity equals a closed door. Just because you're doing what, some people, I've heard this phrase before, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. That's not a biblical statement. I'm not sure it's a true statement. In fact, biblically, as you look, as people do the will of God, it actually gets them into a lot of trouble quite often. And so I'm not sure that the safest place to be is always in the center of God's will. I think as we do God's will, as God opens up doors for us to walk through, we can expect that there's going to be opposition and adversity. We can expect that as believers. Adversity does not equal a closed door. And then the second point of application is this. Full-time cross-cultural ministry is hard, so show hospitality. Paul and Timothy are laboring for the gospel in all sorts of places that make them probably quite uncomfortable. Ephesus would have made Timothy uncomfortable and Paul. So they're ministering in all of these places where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And here we sit, here people sit in Corinth and here we sit in Iowa Falls in the comfort of our own homes. Our life is really quite comfortable in so many different ways. But cross-cultural full-time ministry is quite taxing. And so I'm going to have Amanda tomorrow send out a church email with some email addresses for our global missions partners. You might just want to send them a note of encouragement. 
And then also, by the way, um, Rich Turcha, longtime missionary, one-time pastor of the church, now missionary in Czech Republic, one of our missions partners. He's going to be here at the end of October for a weekend. If you'd like to host him and just be hospitable to one who's engaged in full-time ministry, just to share your life and your stuff with him for the time that he's here, let me know. First one to call wins, okay? So uh, after, after the worship service, it's the last weekend in October. I can't remember the dates. I didn't write them down. But it's the last weekend in October, like coming on Friday, leaving on Monday morning, okay? If you're able to do that, let me know. And, uh, yeah, I think they even put that on there. Call me if you want to host him. That would be a very practical way of, uh, of trying to be hospitable to those who are engaged in laboring in full-time cross-cultural ministry. And I want to close with this before we sing together. I want to close with one verse, not from 1 Corinthians, but from 2 Corinthians. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Because like I told you earlier, what I think is going to drive you to pray that laborers would be sent out into the harvest. What's going to drive you to go and be a part of the laborer for the harvest together? What's going to drive you to give of your time and give of your money for the sake of the harvest? It's not going to be me yelling at you from the pulpit. It's not going to be a great vision laid out. It's not going to be like a church that functions perfectly all the time and like, oh, now everything's just functioning here. That stuff's not going to motivate you. What I think motivates us and needs to motivate us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth in chapters 8 and 9 about giving again because they didn't get the message the first time he told them in 1 Corinthians. So he takes two chapters to talk to them about it in 2 Corinthians. And here's what it says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and it's not talking financially, it's talking that Jesus had everything. Eternal fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he sits on his throne, his rightful throne in heaven, yet he gives that up. Though he was rich, yet for your sake. Why did he give that up? Yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. And then what happens? What happens because of that exchange? What happens because Jesus left his throne and came and entered into this fallen world in in fully human flesh to experience suffering and pain and betrayal and the effect of other people's sin. He comes to experience that so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And do not twist this into a, he's going to make me financially rich. That is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about those spiritual blessings I was talking about before. The salvation that we have in Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so I want to close out this series with this. This reminder that the world is filled with people who are lost and dying in material and spiritual poverty without Christ. This is the reality. And the harvest, I think, is plentiful, but the workers are still few. 
And we are, as we're going to sing in just a moment, facing a task that's unfinished. The gospel being spread to the ends of the earth. And I hope it's one that drives us to our knees, that we hear Jesus' command. Therefore, pray earnestly that we would be a church that would do that. We are sent by Jesus into a hostile world where not everyone likes us or the message we share. That's the reality more and more. But we go, resting in Jesus, knowing the sure victory that's ours because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, holding on to the promise that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. And then this, and we give our time and our money motivated by the good news that Jesus gave it all up for us so that we and many others would have eternal life and joy in Him. And so may we be a church that labors for the harvest that God has provided. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your work in the lives and hearts of so many in this church. Thank you for the way that over time people have given so much of their time, so much of their labor, and so much of their money so that the gospel can go forward. And God, I pray that we would do that more and more as a response to all that we've been given. Because you have given much not so that we could have much, but so that we could give much. And we think of the task that is before us as we've been thinking about laboring for this harvest, and it can make us weary as we think of all those things. But God, we just confess that far too often we don't think about it enough. Our minds are set on what we're doing. We're lethargic. We're slothful. Life is so easy for us, and it's so easy for us to forget about everybody else who is perishing. Not just in material poverty, but in spiritual poverty, living apart from Christ, lost and one day dying. God, would you break our hearts, give us hearts of compassion, that we would give ourselves fully to the work of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.